You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you into Lamentations chapter 3. I want to uh, invite you to pick up and in, in, in maybe jump in on the journey that we've been on as a congregation over the last several weeks walking through this book. And in the story of the Bible, we find ourselves after, uh, we find ourselves in the narrative in, in basically the, the worst situation, maybe the low point of the Bible in some sense. And, and that's why for many of you, you've probably never even read this book or heard this book, or, or at least as we'll see today, some of the only verses you might even recognize have come from this middle central section we'll be in. But other than that, most of us avoid this. We don't like to think about suffering and we don't link, like to think about sorrow. We especially do not like to think about sorrow or suffering that's brought about by our own sin. We especially don't like to think that we deserve punishment or we deserve God and his righteousness to be angry at us. We love to think that, that God should be angry at them, but we rarely like to meditate on this. And yet this is a good and right part of the scripture. You see, up to this point, God has delivered his people from captivity, granted them a promised land with a, with a king, a kingdom, a palace, and, and, uh, and, and even a temple where they they can begin to experience the, the, experience the onset and the gift of God's covenant promises in their own place, in their own way. However, even though they have been given God's blessing, you know as well as I do, the first thing we do with God's blessing is we rebel against him. We, we begin to either worship the gift rather than the giver, or we begin to think we're really the better giver, that we really know what's best for us. And that's what these people did. God in his mercy sent countless prophets to to warn them, to tell them, hey, don't do this. If you continue on this path, it will lead to destruction. And so we find ourselves in the middle of the major prophets, that is Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then right after this in Lamentations, Ezekiel and Daniel. And, and this is most likely, if not written by, but heavily influenced by the prophet Jeremiah. And he is, after all these warnings, the book of Lamentations is a lament about the greatest devastation that the nation of Israel had ever faced. They finally received God's redemption and promise and turned against him, rebelled against him. And finally, as we see, God turns them over. So it's fine, you want the gods of the other nations? You, you want to be like the Babylonians? You, you want to you live like them? Fine, and he turns them over. And the Babylonians come and destroy the entirety of Jerusalem and the entirety of the, uh, every large structure from the palace to the temple. And everything that they held sacred in their own kingdom was gone. And this book is the language, five poems, in fact, the language of lament. Now, I, I believe this is a timely word for us because it is timeless, this is, in many ways, this, this sadness, this kind of a, a heaviness over sin and its effects is, is not meant to be a season. It's meant to be the entire posture of the Christian. And the more that we think about the presence of sin in our own lives in the world and its devastating effects in our own lives and the lives of others, the more we realize how incredibly merciful God is that he would deliver us from this life and grant us an eternal life in his presence. There's much to lament, much to lament, even presently. I believe that if we don't learn the, the language of lament, then we won't really learn the language of deliverance and redemption. 
After all, if God is gracious to you because you're awesome and everything is awesome, then his grace isn't that awesome. But if God is gracious to you in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it, if God has promised to renew all things, even in light of everything in decay and falling apart, then that grace must be amazing. We have much to lament. I shared with you last week my own personal lament in this last year, things that I've experienced. But even as I sense, as as I interact with more and more people, I just sense whether it's because of political divides, whether it's because of any number of difficult situations, there's just a growing frustration and anxiety. There's just a growing sense of hopelessness, frustration, And that is, as this book tells us, lamentable. The count of people that have lost their lives as a result of this pandemic pandemic in our country and globally is lamentable. How fragile we are and, and even how fragile, we talked about this in, even back in March, how fragile our way of life really is, is lamentable. And I would say until we lament the weight of sin and our fragility that the Bible tells us we're like grass or like dust or like a vapor, then we won't realize how amazing it is that God would be mindful of us, grass-like that we are. We're fragile. My own personal frustration and discouragement is the fact that I watch people's responses in the middle of some of these difficulties. Even as we get closer to an election that's kind of revealing how polarized and separated we really are. I'm I'm discouraged. Not that we disagree on who to vote for or what political outcome we want. But I'm discouraged at how people have responded. How they've treated one another. It doesn't bother me that people are petty and divisive and, and, and superficial. It bothers me when people who call themselves Christians do it. And that is lamentable. Not that we disagree on who to vote for, what political party to support, but that we're not persuasive, compelling, or redemptive in the way we do that, but instead vengeful. I might even say childish. That we, instead of glorifying God, often misrepresent Him. It's lamentable that many of our reactions to the events of the last seven months have not advanced our gospel witness in the world. They've hindered it. So last week we saw, the beginning of chapter 3, God's faithfulness in the midst of crumbling earthly kingdoms. These people had lost everything they held dear, and it was in that that they experienced God's faithfulness. And I would invite you, I would invite me, maybe especially me, but I would invite us to experience God's faithfulness in the midst of lamentable circumstances. So I'll begin reading in verse 18, or excuse me, uh, verse 16 of chapter 3, and we will read all the way to verse 42 together. The second section of this middle chapter, the third and middle poem, verse 16 He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. 
So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men, to crush underfoot all the, prisoner, all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. This is God's word, and I pray and trust that it becomes the very voice of God for those of us who begin to listen. These people had much to lament. They had lost everything they held dear, including the gifts that God had blessed them with. But we find that they experienced God's faithfulness. They experienced a renewal of his mercy and the sufficiency of his own character in the middle of loss. And we find that as they have been turned over to the just and right consequence of their own sin, that God will speak as loudly and as clearly as he needs to speak to get the attention of those whom he loves. What does God actually do? It's easy to believe in a God that's up there and out there, as long as God doesn't really matter or God doesn't really interfere with what you want to experience in life. We can easily just assent to believing in that kind of a God, so long as that kind of a God keeps his distance from us and leaves us alone. 
And what we find in the book of Lamentation is that when we desire for God to leave us alone, at a certain point, it's his wrath and anger against sin that allows him to say, fine. You want to do your own thing without me? Fine. You want to worship other gods? You want to trust in and hope in other things? Fine. You want to hope in your circumstances? You want to find joy in this life alone? Fine. And lamentation for the people of Israel, and specifically for Judah and Jerusalem, is what happens when you get what you really want. And that thing that you want is not God. And so what I think we find here, I'm going to point out seven, but there are at least seven, if not more, things that that we see here that are gifts demonstrated for us, even in the midst of suffering. I want them to be, I hope, comfort for you, if, if you're experiencing the loss of something, if you're grieving the loss of something, did you, I love the language there, how visceral it is. This is why I began in verse 16 to start. Did, did you hear that? Like, I forgot what happiness is. Have you, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a position like, I don't, I don't even know what that's like, right? You know how that feels when you see other people who are happy and, and it seems so foreign to you, you're angry at them for their happiness. You're like, Pfft. Have you been there? Because if you are, I want to offer an encouragement. There's something that the book of Lamentations offers here. First, a reminder that that God's not surprised by it, but in fact, there's language. There's an expression that God welcomes, that that he delights in us crying out to him in in those moments. He's not surprised. But second, I want you to find comfort. And I'm going to point out a few things that I think we learned that are instructive for us as as we see these people lamenting and yet experiencing God's faithfulness in the middle. I want you to experience what they experienced. Did you see that list there? The steadfast love of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, and the soul-satisfying sufficiency of God. That is, that he is our portion in the middle of suffering, in the presence, the very presence of sin and its effects, such that you and I can pray like the shepherd psalm, Psalm 23, that, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I do so without fear, knowing that God is going to be my comfort. Not around it. I I regularly want to find comfort by avoiding the valley of the shadow of death. That's not something I'm like, where are you going this year? The valley of the shadow of death. I I would like to avoid. But yet, yet this is in in this valley that, that the psalmist experiences. And I want that for you as well. He also says that he prepares a table, you see this, in the presence of my enemies. Not avoiding opposition, but in the midst of. And I want those prayers to be ours. So the first thing offered to us, beginning in verse 19, is hope. You can have hope, and they demonstrate how you're going to experience hope based on something. I'm going to start with this question as we walk through these things. First, the one, how well do you experience hope in each and every circumstance? How well do you hold on to hope? How well do you experience hope even when you've lost things that you value deeply? How do you hope in the worst circumstances? Maybe the better question would be, more even the layer under that is, what do you hope in in the worst circumstances? We started talking about that this last week. What what do you really think is going to get you through? What's the thing that you go like, ah, at least I know, fill in the blank. How well do you experience that hope, and what do you hope in? And what we find here in the the middle of the book of Lamentations, remember, this is what Hebrew poetry is like. There's not a climax at the end like most Western literature. This is 
This is a chiastic structure, that a building to where it's in the middle. And, and I, I think that structure is a sermon in and of itself that we'll finish for the last few weeks. I want you to see that, that, that hope in God's faithfulness is right smack dab in the middle of awful circumstances. And you'll see this for the next several weeks. Chapter 4, chapter 5, we go right back into lamenting the awfulness of the circumstances. Because you would think, if, if you wrote the story, well, I hope in God, thank God. And then chapter 4 and chapter 5 are fantastic. But that isn't life. And in fact, that's hoping in the circumstances, not in God's faithfulness. And what we find here in the middle of chapter 3 is that the only way to experience hope in each and every circumstance is to have hope above and beyond each and every circumstance. If you want to experience hope in every circumstance, then your hope cannot be in that circumstance. It seems like I, I encounter this many things, and many, many times as I meet with people who are experiencing real trial, real difficulty, right? Like, well, how can I go on if I, if I never get married, right? Well, the answer, stop hoping and getting married. How will I be able to go on if, if I have to stay married to this person? How will I go on if my spouse never changes? Well, stop hoping in us. Don't put your hope in that. How will I go on if my party loses the election? How will I go on if this really is the end of America and the end of democracy? How will I go on if fill in the blank? The answer, stop hoping in your circumstances. And know that if that seems like a, an unreasonable request for you, then, then just know I, I'll be here when you get back. Go ahead, keep hoping in your circumstances, but when it fails, not if, when it falls and crumbles, we'll be here when you get back. We'll be, we'll be the people who go, yeah, yeah, I know what that's like. You're like, man, I was really hoping that would turn out better. Yeah, I know what that feels like. Join the club, lament the nature of a broken, fallen world. Don't hope in it. Now notice, we can learn about the characteristics of God here, but, but we have to be careful. We are not Israel. The specificity of judgment against these people is unique to this people. We are unlike them, and, and the prophets speak to us differently. However, we can learn some things about what this group of people was lamenting. We can learn to have a deeper view of sin and a deeper view of its consequences. And we can learn what happens when you hope in something other than God. Did you, did you catch the language? I have hope, there, therefore, right? What's that therefore even in the verse for? Like, because he calls to mind the steadfast love of the Lord, the mercy that never comes to an end, the faithfulness of God, and the sufficiency of the soul-satisfying sufficiency of God. Therefore, says again, I will have hope. Did you hear it? Like, do you hear the, the sandwich, the chiastic structure, the, the middle of a, I will hope because of this, and because of this, I will hope. But that phrase in verse 24 ought to really perk up your ears, especially as we've been walking through books of the New Testament, right? The, the New Testament, over and over and over again, more than 200 times uses this little phrase, in Christ, in Him, right? In the Beloved. In Jesus, in the Lord. And you see a little bit there, like, so where is the hope? Therefore, I will hope what? In my circumstances, do you see in verse 24? No, I will hope in him. 
And so even though our circumstances are different than the original recipients of this poem, the principle still holds. And unlike the prophets who had a a divine messenger, or unlike them who had the divine messengers of the prophets to tell them why, for us, many, many of the sufferings we experience, we'll never know why. The reason? Because our prophet, that is Jesus, the new prophet, the good and better prophet, Jesus Christ, has told us why. God is holy, and his holiness and his goodness demands that he not ignore sin. And we can't possibly stand the judgment of God. And yet Christ has come to withstand that judgment. And at the cross, sin is taken more seriously by God than at any other moment. When tragedy happens, we can respond humbly. We can respond in reflection. Did you hear where the the reading we we had kind of came to an end? Verse 40, let us now then test and examine our ways. There's suffering. Since we know that God is merciful, we can stop for a moment and examine our ways and return, verse 40 says, to the Lord. Now we saw this over a couple weeks ago, but I want to bring it back to attention because it's still ever-present in the climax of this book. God always fulfills His promise to take sin seriously. God always fulfills His promise to take sin seriously. God is is sovereign over sin and suffering. And that is actually a comfort for us because we know that God is sovereign over the solution. It's a mystery to us how or why these things might happen. But our good and better prophet Jesus comes to make all things new such that we can, like the, the church at Rome, say as Paul encouraged them, that everything, all things work together for good. How and why? Through our, the love we experience by God in Christ. All things work together for them that love God and are called according to what? His purposes. Our why ultimately is satisfied by Jesus. And so you can blame God. You can blame God for the misery in your current life. Whether it's because of your own sin or the sin of others, you can blame God. You can hold God responsible. However, if you blame God and think you can fix it, that's not biblical lament. That's not hoping in God. That's hoping in the changing circumstances. But if you blame God and you can hold God accountable because you know he can fix it, then that's what we find here is a biblical lament. I can cry out to God and say something like, God, I don't even remember what happiness feels like. I don't even know what that's like. And God can go, that makes sense. God is not offended. He doesn't have a chip on his shoulder as a result of that. Like like he takes criticism, welcomes it a little bit better than you and I because he's perfect. But you can cry out to God. I don't even know what happiness feels like anymore. And yet at the same time say, even though I don't know what happiness feels like, I know I can hope in you. And even though happiness is fading, your mercy is new every day. So hope. Notice, though, that hope doesn't come from a change in the circumstance. Hope comes from seeing the circumstance through the lens of what is true about God. Hopelessness comes from seeing God 
through the lens of our circumstance. Let me say that again. Hope comes from seeing our circumstances through the lens of what's true about God. Namely, that he's faithful, merciful, kind, and good. He is sufficient. He is our portion. We see our circumstances through the lens of what's true. We rehearse what's true. And in the moments that, we, that seems untrue, that, that our circumstances start to fade and happiness seems further and further away, we re, we're reminded and we rehearse what's true about God. And we see what's true in light of what we know about God. What's true about our circumstances in light of what's true about God. Hopelessness comes from seeing God through the lens of our circumstances. And you and I have asked this question, right? I know many of you asked this question. If there is a God, then how come fill in the blank? And it's some present circumstance, right? And my list is long at this point, right? How can there be a God and fill in the blank? But just notice what I'm doing and notice how that's always going to end in a hopeless way. I'm, I'm trying to make sense of God through my broken circumstances and my busted lens and sinful perception, right? Rather than seeing the bustedness of the world and the brokenness of my own lens and my own sinful perception through the goodness of God, whose mercy is always new. Think of it this way. We're meant to, as the New Testament tells us, live and walk by faith, not by sight. Biblical lament is rightly lamenting what we see, but hoping in what we believe. Hopelessness happens when we try to find hope in what we see and then lament what we believe. Suffering is meaningful and significant. It is not ignored. God gives us books like this so that we'll have the language to cry out to him. It is significant and meaningful. Your suffering is not wasted. It's meaningful. It is significant. But it is not ultimate. Our circumstances and the suffering that, that they bring may cause us sadness. But for the Christian, our hope is never in our circumstances anyway. And you might say, like, you know, maybe if you're new to this, I, I would especially if maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a believer, maybe you're new to the Bible, maybe you're not even sure if you're a Christian or not. Well, then, then I'm so grateful you're here because one of the first things you might be asking is, like, why is this in the Bible? And are Christians always like this? Are Christians always sad? Are they always lamenting sin? Are they always feeling bad about sin? You know, is this, is this what you guys are like all the time? And, and my answer, I think, in light of Lamentations is I wish... I wish we were. I wish we lamented our circumstances more. I wish we hoped in our circumstances much less than we do. And maybe that's just me speaking. I wish I hoped in and found my joy in my current circumstances much less than I do. Do you hear the language that ensues? Silence, patience. I wish we were more patient. I wish I was more silent. I wish I was more teachable and reflective in suffering than I am. There's a second thing. First, we see the, the hope in God, not the circumstances, such that they have hope even in the worst of circumstances. They lost their kingdom, and yet God's faithfulness was good. It's steadfast love. Remember, that that's the language of Ruth. It's here twice. Remember, as we walked in uh, this last Easter season through the book of Ruth, the, the Ruth is in many ways like a, a narrative 
illustration of hesed, that word steadfast love. And we see the steadfast love in the picture and the story of Ruth, and we see here it's his steadfast love that never ceases. The second thing, you see a, a constant daily renewal. Notice, he says that his mercies never come to an end. And he qualifies them, and it says that they, those mercies that never come to an end, are new every morning. They're new every morning. His mercy comes in fresh doses. That's significant, sufficient, and good every single morning. Now, the daily language here implies something that Jesus picks up on later. Namely, that the mercy you need for today, you don't get until today. And most of our problems come from wanting yesterday's or tomorrow's mercies today. But one of the mercies that God means to give you and me by his faithfulness is the mercy of trusting that he'll give you the mercy you need tomorrow. I'm a hoarder. Some of you know this. And so I, I, feel, I feel very comforted and in control when I have like multiple of the same thing. It just feels good having 10 of a thing. And so I, I've always loved Sam's and Costco. I just, it just feels, when you look at it, I got 10 of those. We're good. On the off chance that all nine of the first ones break in, in one day, I'm like, we're good. I'm set. And so I'm a hoarder, but, but notice that that's a silly representation. But I, I want to confess to you, that's actually a reflection of my heart. And this is a rebuke to me and maybe to you. Is that here's the thing, I want enough mercy to get me through this pandemic. I really, but here's the thing, I want it now. I want to experience the comfort of God's mercy that's gonna get us through this. I really and I have and from, from, and from March, I've been like, God, give us all the mercy we need to get through this. But I was really saying, give it all now. Let, let me feel good now about how this is gonna be at the, you know, at the end of this whole thing, whenever that is, right? And what does he say? He's like, that's not how that works. I'll give you the mercy you need when you need it. Because after all, if just feeling like you have all that sufficient mercy stored up now is what you think will get you through, then what will you do tomorrow? Will you trust and believe and hope in God and his also? all-sufficient, satisfying self, or will you kind of be like, man, and some of you felt this, yesterday was great. Really wish we could go back to that. And he says, no, the mercies are new every morning. And, and the reason they're new every morning is because God knows that he's the only satisfying portion. And many of us most of our problems come from wanting yesterday's mercies, right? Like many of you, I mean, you're stuck in this spot where you're like, remember back in the good old days when it was great? Remember back when things were good? And right now you're trying to relive old mercies and you're missing out on how faithful God wants to show himself to be to you right now. Or if maybe if you're like me and you're just really, you really God, I need all the mercy for the, for the months and years and decades to come, and I need it now. And God's like, no, I need you to trust me when that happens. I find that we cause more harm either trying to reclaim something from the past or storing up more of what we really need for the future rather than trusting that God's mercies today are sufficient. Because after all, if God gave you all of tomorrow's mercies today, 
then the mercy you'd be missing out on tomorrow is faith, is trust. And the mercy that he even invites you and I to experience today is trust that when the time comes, his mercy will be sufficient. Jesus picks up on this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And he says, look, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because today's got enough trouble, right? It's kind of of the darker way to describe it, right? Rather than Jesus saying, you know, your grace is sufficient every day. He's like, actually, today's got plenty of trouble. Sufficient, right? I love the King James, uh, the way, like, you know, sufficient unto the day are, are its troubles, right? There's like a, is it to say, like, there is plenty of suffering, plenty of trouble today. The day will supply all the trouble, but God has promised to supply all the sufficient mercy. Paul picks up on this very thing. He prays that this scallops, a thorn in his side, would be removed. He says, I've pleaded with the Lord multiple times, take away the suffering. And the response he received from the Lord himself was, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient. It's enough. My power, in the end, is made perfect in weakness. I'll give you two examples of this. Uh, I, I even know just there are many days, even like, like today or other, there's other times I've kind of walked up here and my job is to like encourage you with God's mercy and I don't got it, man. I'm running on past empty. I'm just, I'm out. I got nothing. And here's what happens. Right up until the moment where I need his mercy, I don't have it. And then afterward, I look back and go, I don't really know how that happened. That must have been evidence of God's mercy. But I experienced this in a deeper way. One of the a close friends, uh, a close friend of our family, um, died suddenly in a car accident many years ago, well before she should. She left uh, a husband and, and a daughter behind. And this woman was amazing. She was over the top, man. She loved Jesus in the way that kind of like, made you uncomfortable. Right, she had like a like I describe it as like PDA when someone like they're like people people are like showing affection to one another to where it kind of makes you feel uncomfortable. That was like it was a gift she had about Jesus. She was like loved Jesus and trusted Jesus so much that it kind of made you like like stop. Right, this was this woman. She's just I, I just such, that was a gift. It was a it was a, it was a constant invitation. Like oh yeah, you're right. That's probably what I should be feeling like. Just a gift. And, and she died suddenly, and I was meeting a few days after the funeral with her husband, and he gave me another gift. And I said to him something along the lines of, I don't think I could make it if I were in your shoes. And he just rebuked me, said, yes, you would. Yes, you would. No, you don't have the grace and mercy sufficient in you now, but that's because you have your wife with you. But if that should happen... And this is the man, like in the middle of lamentation, in the middle of grief, he's like, if that should happen, I promise you, he will show up. His sufficient mercy will be available. His grace will be enough. And this was a man who, who was, who was, who was like, I, he's like, you know, a month ago, I wouldn't have had it. But for some miraculous reason, every day I, I, I roll out of bed, even when I hate it, and God's mercy is present. And I think you and I also could testify to many circumstances that as we look back, we go like, I don't know how I made it through. It must have been God's sufficient mercy. It's the third thing. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Wait. 
the amount of hope that is experienced in waiting is proportional to the value and the certainty of that for which is hoped. The extent to which you and I can wait for something and experience hope and joy in it is proportional to how satisfying the thing is that we're hoping for and how certain we are that it will come. Here's what I would tell you. We always think that waiting is doing nothing. We think that waiting is a waste. We think that waiting is, is, like, is absolutely doing nothing productive. And part of that's true. Waiting is doing nothing except trusting in the Lord. But it's not a waste. We think waiting is a problem. But the Bible here says that waiting is worship. Right? Isn't, isn't it, in a weird way, an honor to your dentist or doctor when you sit in a waiting room longer than any of us would really want to, right? I don't really want to sit here for this long. But there's kind of a sense in which you're like, in some small way, like, well, you know, he, you know, he or she did go to school for this, and they, he or she can't help me with whatever it is I'm here for, right? There's, and in some way, it's, it's like a little bit of an honor, right? Nah, cynically, I think that some, some doctors and dentists are sitting back there going, like, how long can I make them wait? Like, I want another Twinkie. Give me another one. I've got another, right? Like, I just, that's my own cynicism. But, but even then, you're like, but I, I honor and trust in the help they're going to provide, so I'm going to wait. Friend, multiply that times the, times the infinite nature of God's faithfulness. And waiting faithfully is not a waste. It is worship. It is worship to say to the world that is trusting in other things and wants you to trust in them as well. Say, nah, I've got something better. I'm waiting for the real satisfaction that's to come. Sometimes when we struggle of what to do, the thing to do is to wait. And we wait in hope. And God actually blesses it. We see that after waiting, you'll see that the next thing is, is, is this picture of, I don't know if you caught that, at the end of that section, wait for him, the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly. There's silence. And the next thing we, we, we're meant to be instructed by is that we wait in silence. And all I'll say is it is, it is lamentable. And so therefore we, we often cry out for help to, to things that have no ability to satisfy. And he says, yet here real worship is saying, I'm going to wait in silence. I'm going to cry out to the Lord and to the Lord only. Look how he qualifies it. It's good for a man, and this could read a woman for that matter, it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So he's saying that your waiting in patience and your waiting in silence is actually a part of God's will. It's a blessing that God's given you. The example I think I've shared with many of you is that before I started kindergarten, I was held back. Right? I had a, uh, I had a summer birthday. My father had a summer birthday. And, uh, and he didn't like, he was like a, like really, really little, and I was about as tall as I am, but he, he grew all of that like when he was like a sophomore in high school, which worked out well because he met my mom after that. Joke's on everyone else, right? But they were afraid that I was going to be the same, that I was going to be kind of a late bloomer and I was just going to be the smallest kid in the class all the time. And so they're like, we're going to hold him back and made me intentionally wait an extra year. 
And that was tough because I would meet people, and I was always the oldest in the class. Uh, and I would meet people that uh, they were like, you know, how old are you? And I'd be like, you know, this. And somebody like, oh, yeah, you flunked. And it's like, hmm. And, and I remember, like, even when I was in kindergarten, people were like, like, you know, like I was the idiot. Like, why, are you, why were you held back, right? Why were you held back? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know why you think I'm dumb. You're the one eating glue. I guess I was being, I was being held back so that I wouldn't eat all the school supplies. I mean, like, and I had to kind of, like, endure this shame of being, like, not quite ready. But friend, that was a blessing. That was a blessing. And for most of my time in school, I, I didn't really struggle. And it was because my parents, in their kindness, were like, hey, we're going to, you know, I think you might go home and I think you might just go to school and eat the glue. Let's wait till that's, right, let's wait till that's not going to happen yet. And I was blessed by it. And so for many of you, especially the younger you are in this room, it probably feels like you're wasting your time, feels like you're spinning your wheels. And all I'm, I just want to encourage you, what does he say? It's good. It's actually good that you bear that yoke now. Because one day, after you've kind of toiled through this and endured this, God will bless you in a way that you can't now imagine. And I share this with many of you, like I, I especially some of you are so you're so you're so much further ahead. Um, at some of the people, especially younger than me, you're so much further ahead now than I ever was. And and I tell this all the time, like I wasted about ten years of my life. I just wasted it, not growing, not learning, not being humble, not being teachable, just kind of rebelling against everything around me. And 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 the, here's the the encouragement from lamentation: It's good. That was a good time to do that. It was good that you did that before you had a wife. It was good that you did that before you had children. It was good that before you like, had to be responsible for other people. That was, a, that was not, and, and I find that it's true that the New Testament encourages me, the Lord restores all those wasted years, all the years that the locusts has eat, have eaten. So be encouraged in lament, in waiting, in silence. That evidently is where we experience God's presence and his faithfulness the most. Wanting to get past things quickly just reveals how shallow I am. It just reveals how unable I am to endure suffering. And it just shows my low pain tolerance, especially my low pain tolerance for suffering that's been brought about by my own sin. I just want to get over it, and I want God and others to get over it too. But that's not biblical. We can be weak, we can be sinful, we can wait because of God's unending faithfulness. The next thing, in a couple sections from 31 through 36, you see God's character as compassionate and loving. It's in that suffering, in lament, they experience God's compassion. And we find, he declares and reminds, something to rehearse, that God will bring about justice. So even if you're suffering and experiencing lament because of injustice in your life or in the world, we're meant to be reminded, look, he will not let that happen. He will not let it go. Verse 36, to do that, to experience injustice and subvert man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. And we can lament injustice. In fact, we ought to lament injustice first before we offer our own like, solution. But, but if we haven't lamented, then we're invited to say, this is wrong, this is broken, this should not have happened, but thank God, this won't always be the case. 
The next thing we see is that the sixth thing, they trust the commands of God. Ultimately, the comfort that he received, that he experienced, and that he rehearsed in the midst of suffering was that God commanded these things. And if God commanded awful things, did you catch that? Good and bad. If that's true, if God commanded, sometimes we use language like God allowed it. But, but even if it's awful, even if God commanded it, we can trust that he's still good and we can rehearse the fact that he's going to be merciful enough not to leave us there. God won't dump us there. I love the way he says this, like that even though good and bad things come from the Lord, we can trust that. Did you catch that? Like, Verse 33, he doesn't afflict from the heart, right? The word heart in the Old Testament is like a a sum total of our thoughts, feelings, emotions, and being. And so God isn't summarized by his punishment. We are. Like, when I'm angry, it takes over. And and my anger usually costs me my goodness, right? I usually trade my, my goodness for my anger. But that's not true of God. He's perfect and holy. And so God can be angry and righteous and good at the same time. That's what makes him worthy of worship. Last thing. All of this serves in lament and in suffering to cause us to examine ourselves and return to the Lord for forgiveness. You see that verse 40? Let us now then, get this kind of based on all of this, let us test and examine our ways. And now let us return to the Lord. There's a couple things here. I want you to know that because of Christ, you can lament sin and trust that we can look to him and experience his mercy, faithfulness, and his sufficient presence. Suffering makes us want to be the opposite of everything that was listed, right? Did you catch that list of things? Hope, persistence and faithfulness, patience and waiting, silence, trusting in the goodness of God, obedience in his commands, and trusting and like lamenting with others. Did you hear that language of us? We let us experience God's presence. Forgive us, O Lord. Suffering makes us the opposite of all those things listed that we just went through. Suffering makes us hopeless. It makes us want to give up. It makes us become impatient. It makes us lash out with our tongues. It makes us deny the goodness of God. It makes us disobey God and not trust his commands. And it makes us self-absorbed. But he says that In right and good lament that trusts God and his faithfulness, we can examine ourselves and turn to God. We can do so even in a way that, did you catch that? Plural. We can examine ourselves and turn to God in a way that compels and invites others to go with us. Did you catch that? Let us test. Let us lift up our hearts and hands. We have transgressed and rebelled. Right? Isn't it it always easy for like, well, no, that's actually them. I didn't do it. And he says, no, we, we, have, we in our own sinful selves have all taken part in this. And we can say that together. Why? Because we know that God will show himself to be faithful, kind, and merciful. Friend, God loves you. Did you catch that? Steadfast love in verse 22. Right? Not just flippant, superficial love, right? I love that. Don't you love that? I love that. It's some silly, shallow, and superficial, right? 
God, with a steadfast love, God loves you right where you are. And we know that because he sent his son to redeem you. He made you in his image. And he, in Christ, by faith, calls you and me sons and daughters. So for some of you, maybe you have experienced Injustice, someone has assaulted you, harmed you. You're a victim of someone else's sin. And you may be wondering why God failed you and why God allowed those awful things to take place in your life and in the world. But I want you to know, God didn't fail you. Sin and sinful people did. And despite what you, have made, you may have been told, what that thing, that thing that that person did to you is not your fault. You have value and dignity, even though the world failed to affirm it. God didn't fail you. He's faithful, merciful, and sufficient. Sin failed you. Sinful people failed you. Your idols failed you. And we can lament the failure of those things. We can examine ourselves and the ways that we have unrightly trusted in them and hoped in them. We have put our, all of our eggs in a basket of our current circumstance, and we can confess it, lament it, examine it, and return to God because we know he's faithful and merciful. I'll end on this. Romans chapter 2, a reflection after laying out the effects of sin that are across the world. In chapter 2, Paul tells the Romans, you don't, but don't, 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 don't get self-righteous. Don't start judging the people who sin in this way. He says in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice these things, and yet you do them yourself, that you're going to escape God's judgment? Verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? These people were starting to lament their circumstances and blame others and judge others. And Paul says, no, don't you know that that judging them and thinking you're better than them puts you in the same category as them? Or have you forgotten that it's actually God's kindness that leads you to repentance? Did you catch that In in the text? It's actually, we're reminded that he won't wander from us. He's faithful, he's merciful every day, his portion is sufficient, and we can hope in them. And since we know he's trustworthy, merciful, and and, and faithful, in verse 40, we can examine our ways and turn to him. That's so important. This is the gospel hope in here. Paul doesn't say your repentance will lead to God's kindness. And many of you think that. You think, if I can just get this cleaned up, then God will accept me. If I can just fix my life, then then God will start being kind to me. Once we get past these current circumstances, then God will start being kind to me again. And notice, that's that's an anti-gospel. It's actually God's kindness that leads us to repent. It's actually his his mercy, as we see in this chapter, his faithfulness, his steadfast love that leads us to examine our ways and look to him. And what beautiful language in verse 41 to to be invited into, right? To lift our hearts and even lift our hands, knowing that we have rebelled and yet his faithfulness endures. So friend, what sorrow are you currently experiencing that is inviting you to repent? As you examine your ways, where in your own life do you need to return to the Lord? 
Where do you need to lift up your hearts and hands to God? Where in your life are you trusting in the current circumstances? And here's the thing, you know it. And I don't even have to tell you about it. You know it. Do you know how I know you know it? Because God's merciful like that. God's gracious like that. To remind you, to call your attention to it, not to condemn you. The mercy of God leads us to, according to verse 40, reflect and return. And that sorrow you're experiencing, the weight of your own sin and suffering in the world that you're aware of right now, is not to shame you or crush you. It's to pull you back so that you will experience fresh his mercies new. So if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, if you're, if you're streaming alongside, if you're not a believer in Jesus, I want you to know the suffering that we experience is meant to cause us to stop for a moment and look for hope. Are you hopeless? Maybe today is the day you look to hope in God's grace towards you in Christ. But maybe if you're like me, and maybe this is like the thousandth, you know, hundred thousandth time that you've had to examine and return to the Lord. And you're like, surely, surely this is the time where he's not going to take me back, right? Surely this is the day the Lord's going to be like, I'm sick and tired, that's enough. Friend, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Is this the millionth time? Friend, the mercies of the Lord never come to an end. Does it seem like this is the day that God will turn on you? Friend, God's mercies are new every single morning because he's faithful. Might we then, in faith, examine our ways. In faith, return to him. Lift up our hearts and even our hands to him. Experience his mercy, his faithfulness, and the soul-satisfying sufficiency of his presence. Let's do that now as we pray. Let's bow together and go to the Lord with one another. God, we thank you so much that you are present. God, I confess that I regularly don't experience it or feel it like I wish I could. And so I thank you that there are promises like the ones in this chapter that we're invited to rehearse if there are any of us even now who maybe they wouldn't call themselves Christian or maybe they're just wallowing in hopelessness, might today be the day they, they try something new and they consider the possibility that God really is faithful, that there is a creator who is good and loving who is making all things new in Christ. Might today be the day, might today be the day that someone professes faith and trust and hope not in our circumstances, but for the first time in the sufficiency of God's mercy in Christ. And for the rest of us who are prone to wander, who look for our own glory or we grant this glory to lesser things, might today be the day that we are reminded with your sufficient mercy. Might we have an experience of your faithfulness such that we even know that that mercy is going to be new tomorrow. And might that satisfy us? Might that be our portion might we turn to you and lift up our hearts to you because of the grace that we've been shown in Jesus Christ. Amen.